0: I want to tell you what we're going to be doing uh, for three or four Sundays uh, this summer because if you're uh, here this morning and you're our guest, you've never been here, uh, you may think, well, that was just a little bit odd. That was different than what I have experienced in churches in the past. So I want to give you a little bit of a warning what we're doing. Uh, We're going to do something just a little bit different, a little out of the ordinary. On a regular basis when I am uh, teaching up front, um, and even sometimes when I'm studying uh, to prepare to speak to you, to teach you, uh, there are often times when I come across something and I think, wow, we should really just stop there. We should probably spend a little bit more time there. And then I, I look at the whole layout of the message that morning and just go, we just can't do that. And inevitably when I feel that way, after I get done speaking, somebody says to me, I didn't understand that, I didn't get that, I didn't know exactly what you were saying, or what are the ramifications to that? I mean, if they did that, or if we do that, or all those kind of things. And so we got to talking as a staff several weeks ago, and we thought it might be good uh, to do just a few weeks this summer, and we're calling it, as you see up there on the screen, Sermon Hang-Ups. The byline is, I didn't understand that, I'm not sure exactly what you meant by that. And so uh, I thought it might be good for us to cover some of those things, and that's what we're going to do. Now, here's what I want you to do. In fact, while you're sitting here this morning, uh, take out your little worship folder there, and you've got a connection card in there. We refer to that as our connection card. That is not just, by the way, for those of you that are our guest. If you are our guest, we want you to complete that out. We want to get to know who you are. But it's not just for our guests We want to use that as a tool for you to regularly communicate with us if Northwest is your uh, church home, if you're a regular attender here. Uh, We want you to share with us ways in which we can pray for you and do all those kind of things. What I want you to do with that card today, though, Uh, You may have it right now, right in the forefront of your mind. You may say, this is a question I've been wondering about. It could have come up through our study, maybe through your own personal Bible study. Maybe you had a friend that told you something that you thought was really off the wall. It probably is. And so you you just want to get that clarified. Write that question down on the back of the connection card. Now, depending on how many of those questions we get, I can't tell you that we're going to be able to cover all of them in just these few Sundays that we have to do this uh, during the summer. Uh, but we're going to try to answer some of them. And there's no question that's uh, out of bounds. You're going to find that this morning with uh, one or two of the questions that I'm going to address this morning. Uh, so do that. And at the end of the service, just place those in the, uh, uh, in the offering towers uh, there in the back of the auditorium uh, as you exit. And uh, we'll try to answer some of those and cover as many of those ca- as we can in the next few weeks. So here's what I've done this morning. I've actually got three questions this morning that I'm uh, going to deal with. And uh, I've chosen these three questions because they've come up in conversations, the big one at the end where I'm going to spend the majority of our time, actually, I am asked about on a regular basis, there probably isn't a week that goes by that I don't deal with this particular issue at least once, probably twice, almost every single week, all right? The other two are just random questions that I've had people ask me, and I've wondered a little bit myself, quite frankly, and so I've done some studying this week, and I want to share these things with you. You all ready? All right, and I know some of you are all been out of shape already, uh, Linda Lincoln in particular, because there's no sermon notes, right, Linda? I mean, you're just kind of like, what do I do with my hands? There's no piece of paper there, all right? So if you have a piece of paper, Linda does this. She, like, keeps me on track with this. A few weeks ago, I didn't have sermon notes, and she said, what am I supposed to do? I missed these things, and so I had to make sermon notes specifically for her and send them to her. That's the kind of guy I am, Linda. That's why I did that for you. You don't have sermon notes this morning, so take out a blank sheet of paper and just jot some of these things down, especially when we come to the third question, because I really believe these things will be helpful to you. All right, you ready for the first one? Here's the first one. I know you've wondered this. You'll remember that on Father's Day, we looked at the life of Abraham. And very specifically, in Genesis chapter 25, we looked at his death. And you'll remember that as we looked at his death, the text said that Abraham died at the ripe old age of 175, and he died satisfied with life. Now, I really love that passage of Scripture. In fact, that's why we talked about it on Father's Day. But there's a question that continually comes up in my mind. It's come up in some of your minds, because some of you have asked me about it. How did they live so long, right? I mean, you read about Methuselah, how long did he live? 969 years the man lived. Now, I've read some very liberal theologians this week who have said that, well, the explanation for that is that when the Bible said in the Old Testament, years, it really meant months. So he really lived 969 months. Well, that's ridiculous, okay? There's absolutely no evidence for that. And when you look at the harmony of Scripture altogether, we certainly don't see that to be true. But the question still remains, how did they live to be so old, even 175? The the real answer to it is there is no precise biblical answer, but I have studied some things this week, and I've discovered some things, and I want to share these with you just quickly. Now, I know some of you will really love this. Others of you will go, it'll just be flying right over your head. Some of you will be intrigued by it. You'll go home. You'll Google. You'll do further research. Others of you won't have a clue what I'm saying until I get to the next question, all right? When I get to the next question, you're going to really be interested in that one. All right? So, there's no precise biblical answer, but here is what I have always thought, and I found this to be true as I read different theologians and commentaries uh, this week that you'll remember that when Adam and Eve first were in the world, in the Garden of Eden, there was no sin. When sin came, sin changed things very uh, dramatically. When sin entered the world, there was obviously a harmful effect uh, upon our bodies. It was a harmful effect on all of creation. And as a result of sin, Adam and Eve would now die. Now, uh, genetically uh, speaking... When they were first made, their health was so good that their natural inclination based on their health and based on their being no sin was to live forever, to live a very long time. But since sin entered the world, uh, there has been an effect on people. In other words, we get sick. We get old. I'm watching some of you. You, you. you are, you know. And you're really not that old, some of you, but you're starting to slow down just a little bit. I'm not going to name any names, but that's what happens as a result of the fall. And some have said that genetic mutations, which occur with every birth of a new person, do you realize that? There are mutations that that take place. And you can imagine if that happens with the birth of every new person, how many mutations take place. Those are passed down then from parent to child. And with each passing generation, new genetic problems arise. And as a result of that, there's new problems that that, uh, are introduced to the gene pool. And over a period of time, that just shortens lifespan. Okay? That makes sense to me. Here's another theory, which I found to be uh, very interesting, is that before the flood, there was a canopy of water, uh, water vapor that encompassed the whole world. We read that in the book of Genesis. Some theologians think that at that particular time, that there there was no direct sunlight on earth, that instead the sun's rays were refracted through this water vapor canopy, and the diffused light then passed through the clouds and lit up the world. The interesting thing was that this refraction produced plenty of light for our planet, but as the theory goes, after the flood um, well before the flood, it was filtering out these harmful cosmic rays after the flood, when that vapor barrier was now gone, the sun now has a direct effect on our earth and on creation and I know for all of those people out there that uh, that believe in, in um, all of these things that are happening to our our world and And the ozone is being, you know, this just gives them, you know, a lot of fodder there, right? Um, But some believe that, uh, that that's what happens. And when the floodgates were opened up, that water vapor went away. And so after the flood, there was a lot more direct sunlight on the earth, which caused us not to live as long. At least that's how the theory goes. And finally, in Genesis chapter six, verse three, God says, "My spirit will not always strive with man, for that also, for that he also is flesh. Yet his days shall be hundred and twenty years." This was a statement uh, that was made, and it might be possible that God shortened the lifespan because of man's great wickedness. Another uh, speculative uh, statement. Here's what's interesting, and I wasn't going to read this to you, but I'm going to read this to you because I know some of you will really appreciate this. Some of you, again, it'll go right over your heads, but that's okay. Just, just pay attention here, okay, for just a moment. There's an article which I read this week, and it's called Decreased Lifespans, How We've Been Looking, right, Have we Been Looking in the Right Place. It's written by a guy by the name of Carl Wieland. He said some very fascinating things. Listen to this. Barring accidental death, one-celled organisms are potentially immortal. A bacterial cell reproduces by dividing in two where there was one. Those two then become four and so on. Why then do multicelled organisms die? Individual human cells in tissue culture divide some 50 times and then stop. Some sort of pre-programmed genetic limit is reached. Human tumor cells, on the other hand, can be propagated infinitely by division. The DNA mechanisms for pre-programmed cessation of division appears to be lacking or damaged in some cancer cells. In multicellular organisms, once damaged and worn out cells can no longer replace themselves, death is only a matter of time as the function of the whole organ system deteriorates. So even without any accidents or disease, there is a programmed upper limit on our age, which appears to be about 120 I'm thinking after about 120, I'm ready to go anyway. After I read that, I thought, if I make it to 120, I'm going to be a crotchety old guy. I'm pretty sure about 110, I'm going to hit that. So if I live to be 120, so it's probably good that I'm pre-programmed, that I'm not going to live much longer than that. This guy said, I suggest that our ancestors simply possessed genes for greater longevity, which caused this genetic limit to human ages to be set at a higher level in the past. Suggestive evidence in support of this is the fact that in some other organisms, for example, fruit flies... It has been shown that changes in average lifespans can be bred into or out of population. If this suggestion has merit as the major, if not the sole cause, of great pre-flood ages, then the obvious question is how some of these longevity genes were lost. The human population went through a severe genetic bottleneck at the time of the flood. There were only eight individuals. The phenomenon of genetic drift is well known to be able to account for random, uh, selectively neutral changes in gene frequencies, which may, may be quite rapid. Also, loss of genes is far more likely in a small population. He concludes by saying it is also likely, if not more so, that gene coding for lesser longevity arose by mutational degeneration with their frequency of possession rising as time passed. And then he says at the moment, too little is known on the exact me- mechanics of the way in which cells are programmed to die in order to offer more specific suggestions. But I found that to be incredibly fascinating. I'm sure some of you did too, and others of you are going, next question please. All right. But that are, those are some theories, some ideas of why people might have uh, lived longer. Uh, don't buy into the fact that if you read in some uh, uh, magazine or something that, that months were actually, or years were actually months, don't, don't buy into that. I believe that when Scripture says that Abraham lived to the ripe old age of 175, that he did, uh, and then uh, he died. All right, next question. You're going to love this one. Why was it okay for those men to have so many wives? You ever thought about that one? You ever been reading in your devotions, ladies, and gone, what the, I mean, come on. I have done that on a regular basis. Now, I will say that I am married to, I believe, one of the most easy-to-live-with women that God has ever created. But still, I mean, I'm just saying that it's still, you know, marriages, it takes work, right? Even in the best marriages, it takes work. I can't understand when it says that Solomon had 700 wives. I don't understand what this guy, I mean, all the, guys, what did he do with his time? I mean, How could he have done anything else other than take care of his wives? Now, now be honest. How many of you at times have wondered, as you've read Scripture, how come that was okay for them to have so many wives? Who's wondered that? All right, a lot of you. See, that's why we're answering these questions. The question of polygamy, I think, is a very interesting one. And while most people today uh, view polygamy as immoral, uh, the Bible nowhere explicitly talks about uh, polygamy. The first instance of polygamy in the Bible is in Genesis chapter 4, in verse 19, where Scripture says that Lamech married uh, two women. And there are several prominent polygamists uh, in the Bible. Uh, One Bible commentator referred to Abraham as a polygamist. We talked about him uh, a few weeks ago. And you'll remember he was married to Sarah, and Sarah couldn't have children. And so, therefore, he had a child with uh, Hagar, with her maidservant. Not sure I would call Abraham a polygamist for that relationship. I think there were other factors there. But certainly Jacob, David, certainly King David, the man after God's own heart. And then there was Solomon. In, in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 8, God speaking through the prophet Nathan said that even David's wives and concubines were not enough. And that's why he went after Bathsheba. He would have given David even more wives. That's confusing to me. I don't understand that. Solomon had 700 wives, not only 700 wives, but he had 300 concubines uh, as well. Now, some of you uh, young guys, you single guys, you middle school, you high school guys are going, that'd be cool, have a lot of wives, that'd be awesome. Uh, Some of you married guys are going, no, one's enough, that's good, I can minister to her, it's good, right? I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands on that one. But let me answer just quickly three questions about that. Why did God allow polygamy in the Old Testament? Now, the Bible doesn't specifically say why God allowed polygamy. That's one of those things that I don't think it's real high on my list of things that I want to cover, you know, right when I see Jesus. I mean, I don't want to really walk up and go, hey, about this polygamy thing. I didn't really get that. Okay, I've got some other things that I want to deal with first, but um, I do want to ask that question. And so I did some studying this week. I did a little bit of research. And as we speculate about God's silence, there are a few things that I want you to consider. First of all, uh, there were slightly more male babies than female babies Um, due to women having longer lifespans. And by the way, that's true right now. You realize that, right? Guys, we're we're, we're programmed against already, all right? If you're here and you're single, I mean, you just got to understand that, all right? When you find one, you better try to seal the deal because we are already we are already lesser than the female population. And that was certainly true uh, in the ancient world in Bible times. And so some have speculated that since there was such a difference in male population to female population, God allowed for that. Secondly, warfare in ancient times, and I found this to be particularly intriguing, if if you're a student of history, you know that warfare was... um, uh, was very, very brutal. Now, I know some of you have served in the armed forces and you see war very brutal, but all you got to do is watch a little bit of Gladiator, right, guys? Are, are you with me? A little bit of Braveheart. And you know these dudes were, I mean, they were off the charts, right? And so it was not uncommon for thousands of them to go into battle and for very few of them to actually come back because they were literally slaughtered on the battlefields. And that resulted, uh, commentaries, uh, right that there was even a greater percentage of women to men here's the third thing that you need to understand uh, that due to patriarchal societies it was nearly impossible for an unmarried woman to provide for herself I never really thought about this but again if you're a student of history and you've studied ancient cultures you know this to be true Women were often uneducated, they were untrained, and women, women relied on their fathers, they relied on their brothers, and certainly their husbands for provision and protection. Now, I'm glad that in 2012, we don't live in a world like that. In fact, there are some women, in fact, a lot of women that I know, that can do a better job taking care of themselves than they can when they get together with some pathetic man. All right, that, that, that's a whole other question that we'll answer sometime. But we don't live in those days. But you have to understand that that when we're reading in the Old Testament, that was the culture at the time. And so unmarried women were often uh, subjected to prostitution and to slavery. And the significant difference between men and women would have left many, many women in very undesirable situations. And so it seems that God might have allowed polygamy to protect and provide for those women who could not find a husband otherwise. And so a man would take multiple wives and he would serve as the provider and the protector of all of them because while that was definitely not ideal, it was better than the alternative for many of those women. And so how does God view uh, polygamy today? Um, Even while allowing polygamy, the Bible presents monogamy as the plan uh, for uh, marriage, it's very easy to see that if we went back to the book of Genesis, and if you have your Bible, you can turn back there. Genesis chapter two, verses twenty-four and twenty-five. You will see that from the beginning, God intended it to be one man with one woman. Uh, the use of the uh, singular uh, should be noted in that text. Uh, God says it over and over and over again uh, in the Old Testament. Not only he say in the Old Testament, but He more specifically says it in the New Testament. You'll remember if you've been around here for a while that we've taught you the biblical qualifications for elders. And if you look in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, one of the qualifications for an elder is that he be the husband of one wife. Now, there are many Bible scholars that will give different interpretations of exactly what that means. You can't get away from that in the original Greek text, which our Bible was originally in, that that word that's used there, a, a, the husband of one wife, literally means a one-woman kind of a man. It means that that man had one wife at a time totally committed to that one person. Now, uh, whether or not this verse is explicitly referring to polygamy, there are some uh, who I highly respect, that disagree with me. And while there are some that I respect just a little bit more than them that agree with me, there is some debate in Bible scholars of whether or not that exactly referred to polygamy. But whether or not we certainly see that God's ideal for the elder is what? You wouldn't want me to have 20 wives. I'm not sure there are 20 women that could live with me now that I think about that. You, wouldn't want, you would want me to be committed to one woman. No amens or anything else on that statement, okay? You just pass right over those things. God says that I'm to be a one-woman kind of a man. I'm supposed to be committed to one woman. And the same should be true of our other elders. And you remember that in 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus 1, those biblical qualifications, while given to leaders, while given to elders, um, they should equally apply to all Christians. For example, Christians should be above reproach and they should be temperate and they should be self-controlled and respectful and hospitable and not given to drunkenness and not violent but gentle and not quarrelsome and not lovers of money. Those things should be true not just of us as elders, but they should be true of the body of Christ, those that are Christ followers. Ephesians 5 also speaks of the relationship between husbands and wives and in Ephesians 5, 22 to 33. It's always singular. It is one man With one woman. And so it leads to the last question: why did it change? God views it that way. If that's been the ideal, then why did it change? And it's not so much of uh, that God is disallowing something that he previously allowed, as that God is restoring the ideal. God is restoring the way that he intended marriage to be. You'll remember, and I think it's important to remember in all of these type questions, that sin changed things dramatically. You understand that, right? In fact, in our first question, you see sin changed lifespans, and not only did sin change lifespans, but sin obviously had a dramatic effect on on this institution that God called marriage, and even to this very day, outside of even polygamy, we have those same issues, right? Because sin changes things. In most modern societies, there's absolutely no need for polygamy, right? Based on what we heard before. Women are able to take care of themselves, are able to provide for themselves, and as I said in a lot of instances, even better than if they were married uh, to a man. And so the one potentially positive aspect of polygamy in the Old Testament is really taken away in our modern culture, in our modern society. And furthermore, modern cultures uh, forbid it, right? I don't know if you understand this, but you can't have more than one wife. That's illegal. You're not supposed to do that. By the way, it's also very expensive, I hear. So don't do that. We're also told in Romans chapter 13 that we're to do what? We're to obey our laws. We're to obey those laws that have been established for our good, for our protection. And so even if God didn't forbid it, we should not do it because our law forbids it. Now, there are some instances in which the allowance for polygamy would still apply today. I can't think of what they might be. Uh, but I will uh, give you some room that there is some remote place on the globe where it's just necessary for this man to take care of these people and to, I, I don't know where that is, I've never been there, and I've been to the edge of nowhere, by the way. Some of you in just a couple of weeks are going to go to the edge of nowhere in Kenya. You'll be there, you'll see what I'm talking about. And uh, they still, even in their culture, are practicing some of these things in an unbiblical way. It is not God's intent. Due to the one flesh aspect of marriage, when a man comes together with a woman and God says they become one, they become one flesh. I would say to you this morning that the position of Northwest Community Church and certainly my position is very clear, that I believe marriage is between one man and one woman. That's the way God intended for it to be. And that's the way that it works best. And those of you that are in those kind of relationships, and husbands, you're honoring your wives, and wives, you're honoring your husbands, and you're living together in harmony. Not every single day, because you're going to have conflict. But when you're doing that, God will bless that. So, the fact that they were allowed to have so many wives does not mean God's hand of blessing was on that. That was never God's intent. To some degree, we'll have to wrestle with that someday when we get to heaven. And uh, we'll have to ask how David was such a great friend of God when he had so many wives. It's interesting that God certainly uh, came down pretty hard on David for his relationship with Bathsheba, but seemingly never judged him harshly for his multiplicity of wives. Those are questions that are left unanswered. I'm not going to pretend this morning that I've got some phenomenal answer for that. All right, question number three. This is where we're going to spend the rest of our time here this morning. This comes up on a really regular basis. And the question is, does God have a will for my life? And if he does, how can I know God's will for my life? Has anybody ever wondered that? How do I know what God wants me to do? Now, some of you who were really paying attention, when we were in Nehemiah chapter 7, you remember that particular text? I'm sure you do. We were in Nehemiah chapter 7. In fact, we were down at verse 61. Some of you, you love this passage of Scripture because it was there that there were a bunch of names that we can't pronounce that were given. And uh, in that particular text, um, there were some men that said that they were priests. They were of the, the line, the lineage of priest. and, hey, we want to be priests. We want to serve in that way. It's interesting. Verse 64 says, these searched among their ancestral registration, but it couldn't be located Therefore, they were considered unclean and excluded from the priesthood. The governor said to them that they should not eat from the most holy things until a priest arose with Urim and Thummim. Do you remember this now? We talked about the Urim and the Thummim. Um, so here are these priests, and or at least they say they're priests, but they can't prove any credentials. They can't show any credentials. And so out come the Urim and the Thummim. The Urim meaning the lights, the Thummim meaning perfections. These were gemstones that were created by the high priest of Israel, and they were worn. Uh, most Bible scholars believe either uh, uh, on the on on the ephod on his on his priestly garments. Now it's unclear whether the urim and the thummim were on by or on uh, actually on by or in the high priest ephod. No one knows precisely the nature of those two things or exactly how they were used. The Bible doesn't give us complete information. Uh, they, but they were used by the high priest, we do know from this text and from other texts, in order that they might determine God's will in some situations. Now, I don't know about you, but if you're a student of the Bible and all of a sudden, I mean, I go to Jonah, and all of a sudden they're going, who's the dude we should throw over? And they go, I don't know, let's draw us, I'm going, oh, Man. I didn't do anything wrong. I don't want to draw a straw. And I'm looking here going, but I am a priest. I don't want to rely on some Urim and Thummim, whatever that is. I don't want to do that. I want the truth to be known. But for whatever reason, God used these things. Other people proposed that the Urim and the Thummim were kept in a pouch, and they were engraved with symbols identifying yes, no, or true, false. And the priest would use this as a way, seemingly with God's blessing, for them to be able to determine truth and what was his will. Now, I said to you when we were in Nehemiah chapter 7, I would love to have a Urim and a Thummim. Whatever. I mean, I got a Thummim, I guess. But I, I would love to have a Urim and a Thummim like, like they had, and I'd love to be able to do that. Wouldn't you like to have just something that you just went to and you said, what should I do here? You know, oh, great, magic eight ball. You know, wouldn't that, wouldn't that be cool? I mean, I know it's wrong, but it'd be really awesome to have something like that, that we would just know that this is what God said we're supposed to do. So since we don't have those things, how can we know God's will? In other words, if you're here this morning and you're single, how do you know who to marry? How do you know where to live? How do you know what career path to follow? How do you know what car to buy? I mean, there's so many good cars out there with 0% interest for 972 months. How do you know which one to buy? Should I mow the lawn or should I watch the football game? Urim and thummum. No, that's good. Should I eat Italian, God, or would you prefer me to have Mexican today? We often use phrases such as this. See if you've been guilty of this. I do it all the time. I prayed about it. What does that mean? God spoke to me. It's the Lord's will. But how can we know God's will? I find myself on a regular basis, myself personally, I'm not talking about you, using those phrases. And if I'm honest, if I'm honest, there are a lot of times when I'm simply putting the blame on God for something that my flesh wants to do. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands this morning if you've been guilty of that, but I think that that's what we're capable of doing. I think sometimes God's sitting up in heaven going, I didn't say that. Now I'm hoping that one time in my lifetime, if I live to be 120, maybe he'll do it. I'm hoping that one time God will come down and go, no, 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 time out, time out. What he just said, I did not tell him to do that. That is not part of my plan. So I don't know what he wants to do. I don't know what he's going to do. But don't use my name. You didn't pray about it. I didn't tell you anything. Now I'm going back to heaven. That's what I would love to see happen just one time. Unfortunately, uh, that's not how God operates. And so the question that I have on a regular basis, and I do, you'll have to trust me on this, at least once every week I'm talking to somebody about God's will. And if I'm not talking to somebody else about God's will, I find myself asking those same questions. How do I make this decision? Now there are very clearly some things in Scripture that we know to be God's will, right? Very easy. Let me give them to you real quick, just five of them. We know it's God's will for us to come into a relationship with him. He created us for that relationship. Second Peter chapter 3 and verse 9 says this, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some people count slow, slowness, but he is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but that all would come to repentance. He wants a relationship with you. If you're here this morning and you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you are outside of the will of God for your life because he wants you to have a relationship with him. Number two, he wants us to walk in the Spirit. Okay, When we come to know him as our Savior, we don't walk in the flesh anymore. We walk in the Spirit. Galatians 5.16 is very clear about that, that we're to walk in the Spirit. Then he tells you what that means, how you do that, how you walk in the Spirit. Kind of hard to do, admittedly, but that's what he wants us to do. He wants us to be sanctified. What does it mean to be sanctified? Sanctification is the process of being set apart uh, for God's work and being conformed to the image of Christ. In other words, he wants us to continually become like him, to look like him, to take upon those Christ-like characteristics in our life. We know that's what he wants us to do. Some of you have been here long enough. You were here for our, our study of First uh, Peter. And you remember that a theme in First Peter chapter 2 is that God wants us to be submissive, right? We all have people that we have to submit to. We have to submit, you'll go to work tomorrow, some of you, hopefully a lot of you, you'll go to work and they'll be a boss, and you have to submit to that boss, right? You gotta come underneath their authority, and what they tell you to do, you gotta do. Kids, when you go home, your parents are gonna tell you to do something you don't wanna do, you're gonna have to come underneath their authority. We all have authority that we need to be submissive to, the most significant of which is God's authority in our life. It's not all about us. We don't live just for our own purposes and our own pleasure. We're to be submissive. And then lastly, an important thing for you to remember as you try to look for God's will in your life, did you know this, that it's God's will for us to suffer? Now, when's the last time you said, man, I know it's God's will for me to do this thing, and I know it's going to hurt. But I've prayed about it. God spoke to my heart, and he wants me to suffer. As many times as I talk with people about God's will, Never in 25 years of ministry has somebody come to me and go, I really don't, but, you know, God wants me to do this. He wants me to suffer. I I prayed about it, and he said, suffer. And yet, and yet, Scripture is very clear. 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 19, Therefore, those also who suffer according to what? The will of God. So sometimes, God wants you to suffer. And in the whole context of his will for your life, sometimes it involves suffering. You see how important that is? Because we think God's will is only for those things that make us really happy. And we go, you are an awesome God. I want to sing that song again. You are the famous one. Because you're doing such great things in my life. And sometimes God's going, well, you think I'm so good? Because I'm going to take you through this. Right? Some of you are doing, doing that right now. You're going through times of difficulty and times of suffering, and you're going, this can't be God's will for my life. And I'm here to tell you that very often it is God's will for your life to go through suffering. Many of us have the idea that God has predetermined every event that will happen in our lives. Right? Maybe you've grown up like that. I kind of grew up like that. I was taught there's a dot right out there. Go find it. And I'm going but it's a big world out there. Yeah, I know, but there's a God. God's got a very specific will for your life. now remember this, that there's a difference in the fact that he is sovereign, meaning he's the boss, right? And he is in control of everything. And the fact that he is omniscient, he knows everything. There's a difference in what I just said. God does not, I don't believe, determine and orchestrate every single event of your life and just leave you simply as a marionette that He controls. I, I don't I don't believe that. Some of us I believe have made God's will so incredibly complicated. That for many of us, we agonize and we agonize and we agonize. And we never get off dead center because we're so scared because God hasn't spoken to us in an audible voice. He hasn't written anything on the wall. He hasn't woken us up in the middle of the night or given us this fascinating dream. and, And we're just struggling for this as if God's will is some needle in the proverbial haystack and we just can't find it. And so does God just operate us like little marionettes on strings? Do you ever feel like that, that you're just kind of going through lives? Just like this. And I don't have any choices. I don't ever have to worry about it. I know some people that have such an extreme view of God's sovereignty that they believe they really never, ever can make a mistake. You know, I went out, I got drunk, got in a car, drove, killed somebody. But, hey, it's God's will. I mean, that's just, you know, it's the way it happened. God's sovereign, right? I mean, he is a sovereign God. Okay, that's ridiculous, right? Those people that believe that we live for a dot, for example, are awfully inconsistent because if you believe that you live for a dot and that God has predetermined every single event of your life and you have no freedom to choose anything, then you got a rough time at the restaurant in just a little while. Right? Because around the whole table, you got to say, stop, stop, stop. First of all, do we choose the right restaurant? Let's pray. And then you go, wow! And especially go to the Cheesecake Factory. You ever looked at that menu at the Cheesecake Factory? What is the deal with that? Do they really all, all do they have all that food? I ask myself that question. Are they just going, no, people probably won't order that. But let's put it on there, though, because at least it fills up the menu. <laughs> well, think about that if you're going there for lunch, and you're going, well, God's got a very specific, you know, I kind of would like the wings, but I don't know, that pasta looks good too pray. God, just show me somehow. You see how inconsistent that is, and I realized several years ago that my view of God's will was very skewed in that way, that I'm always looking for this proverbial dot, this needle in a haystack, and I don't believe that's how God works. Now, as we close this morning, and I'm going to do this very quickly here, um, I, I want uh, to recommend a book to you, okay? Now, some of you that you're readers, your are studiers, you know, you may have an opinion of this book already. Uh, if you haven't read the whole thing and you haven't studied it and you haven't, then, you know, don't be sending me all these emails and Okay, because if you, if, you, if you do that, then I'm, we want, I want to sit down and dialogue with you, okay? I want to talk with you about this. Um, the book is Gary Friesen's book, Decision Making in the Will of God. This book has been out really for about 25 years. They've sold a quarter of a million copies of this book. I, I want to tell you, I really believe that this book is probably one of the best books for handling this issue in the believer's life. And I want to challenge you, especially those of you that are students, your readers, I want to challenge you to get a copy of it this week. Get it on Amazon, they'll ship it to you, they'll have it in a couple days. It's 500 pages long. I know. It's funny because I read something uh, uh, just this week in my studies. Uh, Gary Friesen's mom said, I really like your book, but it's way too long. <laughs> she said, I think it's been very helpful to the body of Christ, to Christ followers, but Gary, nobody's going to read 500 pages. And so what he actually did was he took all 500 pages and he condensed it into 11 pages. It's awesome. I love little books like that. The ones I can read real quickly and say, yes, I read this book. All right, that's awesome. And so uh, we'll make a a link available on our website to that PDF this week. It's an 11-page summary of what I'm going to share with you here uh, that Gary refers to as the way of wisdom. Okay, I'm going to take you through it very quickly. Come to the website this, uh, this week and, and download that PDF and read it. The first principle is this. There's the principle of obedience. The principle of obedience. This is simply put where God commands, we must obey. Right? There are things that God said in his word and I don't have to pray about it. You know? God, should I marry one woman or ten? I like ten of them. You know? I mean, what should I? We don't have to pray about that. Sometimes people tell me they're praying about stuff, and I'm going, "Why? It's very good that you should do that. Do it. If you, you just do it." And other times I'm going, "You got to pray about that? That's obviously wrong. Don't do that. That's wrong. That's sinful behavior." The principle of obedience says, "Where God commands, we must obey." For example, we have to glorify God in all things. 2 Corinthians, uh, 1 Corinthians ten verse thirty-one. We're to minister to other people, right? We're to be hospitable. Romans fourteen. We're to fill, fulfill our God-given responsibilities, First Peter 4. We're to evangelize lost people. We're to share the good news of the gospel with people that have never heard. If you don't do that, you are disobedient, okay? It's just not, that's not my gift. No, you're disobedient. The principle of obedience says, where God commands, I simply obey. Here's the second principle. I really like this one. First one's a little tough sometimes. Second one, I really love. Here's the principle of freedom. Where there is no command, God gives us freedom... And responsibility to choose. Okay? So you're not going to go to the Bible, single guys, and, you know, you're, you're kind of like this girl, and you like, you're not dating them at the same time. You're just kind of, you know, you're checking them out. You, 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 like, you like both girls, and you're deciding who I, who I want to date. You're not going to go to the Bible, and God's going to say, you know, blondes have more fun. Uh, you should date the blonde one. It, you're not going to find that in the Bible, right? So what are the questions that we ask then, guys? Seriously. We say, does she love Jesus? Because if she didn't love Jesus, then I know one thing, right? What? What is it? That's not God's will for my life, right? I don't have to pray about then, would you, God, would you have me spend time? God's going to go, no. No, she doesn't love me. Now, not only does she love Jesus, but is she walking in the Spirit? Is she sanctified? Is she submissive to authority that's around her? Is she willing to suffer for the cause of Christ, for God's honor and for God's glory? And if all those things are true, then you have freedom to choose. Isn't that awesome? If we had time, I'd give you illustration of how I really struggled with that when I was in college and just out of college with that particular issue because I was so convinced that there was this needle in a haystack, and if I missed that needle or if, I, if, 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 if something just didn't go particularly right, then I'm stuck. You know, I'm going to be a single youth pastor for the rest of my life because I missed this. I don't believe that to be true. There are some decisions which have multiple options, any number of which may be very acceptable to God. The final decision made must not be in violation of God's moral will. In other words, those things that he's commanded us to do. But God will not dictate to the believer what he must do. I believe an individual is free to make that decision. Now, I know that is really, for some of you, depending on the environment you grew up in, that's like mind-blowing to you. Let me give you a few instances in Scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 27, the context is, they're wondering, can they eat meat that's been offered to idols? Remember the text? Some of you will. They're going, that looks like a really nice cut of meat, and the butcher put it on sale. And the people are going, no, 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 that meat's been offered to idols. And so some are going, oh, well, we can't eat that, and we can't. And so Paul's addressing that, and he says, If one of the unbelievers invites you, and you wish to go, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 27, and you wish to go. You can eat anything that is set before you without asking any questions for conscience sake. I love that. So if an unbeliever comes to you and says, hey, we're cooking out tonight. Got a new grill, got some great meat down with the butcher. You can, If you want to go, now maybe this guy's just an annoying unbeliever, and you're going, I really don't want to go eat dinner with him. Then you don't have to go. I love that under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, Paul wrote, and you wish to go, Right? If you get that opportunity and you wish to go, you're free to go. You don't even have to ask any questions of where the meat came from. Just enjoy it. I love that. 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 7. We talked about this verse just a few weeks ago. Let each one give just as he has purposed in his heart. Gives you the idea that you're going to make up your mind, right? But you are to do it not grudgingly, give not grudgingly, or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So you can choose what you're going to give, but do it based on these principles. But I'm going to give you the freedom to choose. And then lastly, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 39. A wife is bound to her husband as long as her husband lives. But if her husband is dead, she's free to be married to whom she wishes. That's awesome. God doesn't say go provide the, uh, find the proverbial needle in the haystack. You're free to marry whoever you wish. And I love this. Get this. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 39. The end of the verse. Only in The Lord, right? So you can marry anybody that you want as long as she loves Jesus. If she doesn't love Jesus, you can't marry her. But if she loves Jesus, and if this is true of her life, have a good time. You're free. Third principle, principle of wisdom. Where there is no command, God gives us wisdom to choose when we are walking with him. I hope you get that. Gary Friesen defines wisdom is the power to see and the inclination to choose the best and the highest goal together with the surest means of attaining it. Wisdom is the ability to be able to recognize what is spiritually profitable in a given situation. I love that. So, I have a good understanding of the word. I have good people around me who love Jesus and are walking in the Spirit. I have I have have, uh, circumstances that I can look at, and then I make those decisions based on that wisdom that God provides. And then number four, this is a cool one too. There's the principle of humble trust. When we've chosen what is moral, when we've chosen what is wise, then we have to trust the sovereign God to work all the details together for our good and, most importantly, for his glory. Isn't that cool, and that's why we have a verse like Romans eight twenty eight. You ever heard that verse? Anything that happens, we know all things work together for good. Them love God. I don't know, it's gonna work good. I really messed up my life. I made a lot of decisions that I know are morally incorrect. I know that they lack wisdom, but when all things work together for good, them love God. Love Jesus. It'll just somehow work itself out. No, 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 no. That's not how it works. When you are saved, when you're walking in the Spirit, when you're sanctified, when you're submissive, when you're willing to suffer for the will of God, God says, I take all of that and I'm going to work it together for, my, for your good and for my glory. That's what he promises to do. And that's why it's awesome, by the way, to serve a sovereign, omniscient, omnipotent God. Because he can take all of that and work it for our good, and ultimately for His glory. So here's where to start. Okay? Romans 12, 1 and 2, verses many are familiar with, says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable God, to God, which is your reasonable service of worship. And don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, the things you think about. Some of you wonder why there's so much confusion Because of what you put into your mind and what you're thinking about. You know, you listen to music that's stupid and and just has worldly philosophies and everything. And you're going, I just don't know God's will. That's because your mind is screwed up. You're messed up. Paul said you got to transform your mind. When your mind is renewed, you're going to be able to prove what God's will is. That which is good and acceptable and perfect. Here's one of my favorite verses in all scripture. Psalm 37, verse 4. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he does what? He gives you the desires of your heart. Verse 5 says, commit your way to the Lord, trust also in him, and he'll do it. Here's the best part. When I'm doing what God has clearly told me to do, when I am finding my delight in the Lord, right, because I'm saved, because I'm walking in the Spirit, I'm sanctified, I'm submissive, I'm willing to suffer for His will. When I'm doing all of those things, I am finding my delight in the Lord, meaning that's where my satisfaction comes from. I had a lunch time with a guy this week. That's what he told me. I got the point where I found out That the reason why I was so depressed, so discouraged, and life was going in a bad direction is because I didn't get it that God wants me to be totally satisfied with Him. And He said, when I got that, right, my life changed. When you delight yourself in the Lord, when He becomes the center of your satisfaction, when what He wants is all you want, then you can trust the desires of your heart. If that's not true, Jeremiah 17, 9 comes into effect, which says the heart is what? It's deceitfully wicked. You're really messed up people, and so am I. But when we're delighting in the Lord, we can trust it. And so if you have taken care of all those things, who do you think is running your life? God's running your life, right? His desires are synonymous with your desires. And so guess what? Here's the cool thing. You can do what you want you heard it here first. You can do what you want. You can do what you want. God's not looking up, going, no, 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 you young man, I wanted you with the blonde, not the brunette. He's not doing that. No, not the Italian restaurant. Oh, you dummy! I wanted Mexican today. That's what I want. He's not doing that. I know some of you are looking at me, going, that's awfully simplistic. You know, can you give us a little more theology? I can. I'm telling you, when you delight yourself in the Lord, he gives you the desires of your heart because the desires of your heart, of my heart, they are synonymous with what will ultimately be the best for us and bring the most glory to him. I challenge you, if you struggle with what I just said to you, used a lot of proof text, by the way, if you struggle with that, I challenge you to do some more reading and some studying. If you just accept it at face value, that man, that sounds biblical. That sounds right. Enjoy, live for Jesus, delight in Him, and watch Him give you the desires of your heart. And don't be looking for the proverbial needle in a haystack. Get off ground zero. Start moving. If you think God's called you to be a missionary in France, then get moving. Learn to speak Spanish or Spanish. Learn to speak Spanish. Yeah. (laughs) Do that, and if you do, then you'll realize that you shouldn't go to France. That you should go to. As one girl said this morning, you should go to Cuba where they speak Cuban. Maybe that's what you should do, all right? If God's called you to that, then start pursuing it. Go in that direction. Here's what I'm comfortable with and confident with, that when you do that, if God hasn't called you to France or God wants you someplace else, somewhere along the line, he's going to do this. This is how I see him operate in my life, just like this. But I don't see him going, "Uh, uh, uh, you're just always messing. I don't see him doing that. I see him going like this. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, that's good. You know, But I'm going in the right direction. I'm moving forward. That's how you know God's will for your life. Well, we don't have a Urim and a Thummim, I think we have the advantage of having the completed canon of Scripture. And I think that if we live a life that God's called us to live and we're delighting ourselves in him, I think we can know God's will for our lives. All right? So what questions do you have? Write them down there on your uh, connection card. Uh, stick them in the offering box at the back, and uh, it'll be fun the next few weeks as we answer some of these questions. Let's pray.